Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? All right. Well, Merry Late Christmas to those of you who have just returned from seeing family like Casey and I. We're glad you're here today for those who are used to coming to Western Hills on Sunday morning. I'm glad to see you. And for those of you who might be new, I promise the normal preacher doesn't look this disheveled. Um, <laughs> special treat today. We had a really good Christmas with family, and it was enjoyable and restful. Casey and I got back last night. We spent the first actual Christmas day in Walters with Stan and Kim and the rest of the family, and it was just really good, and it was a good ending to what has been an absolute whirlwind of a year for us. And I would think from the conversations that I've had with a few of you in here and, uh, and others, uh, that that's been the case for you as well, maybe. That this, this might have been a hard year. Uh, it seems like there was a lot of people who had a lot going on. And so I'm, I'm kind of glad we're at the end. Uh, I'm very excited to celebrate the new year in this coming week. Um, I won't go into our full year story, but Casey and I, as most of you know, spent quite a bit of time in and out of the hospital at the beginning of the year. Um, and once she recovered well enough, thankfully so far, that we could kind of resume some of our normal life activities. It's just been really busy, and we've kind of had that cloud hang over our heads. So we're really grateful that we're entering a new year. Today, what I want to talk about a little bit, as we, as we close out this chapter on, the, on this year and enter into this next year, is something that Casey and I have found to be really helpful for us and something that I've really appreciated having the knowledge of throughout this year, throughout all the craziness, something that has kind of centered us and brought us back and given us rest in some moments when we thought, man, there's just a lot going on. Uh, early on, when we were at Mayo Clinic, we were listening to one of Casey's favorite pastors. His name is John Mark Comer, and he was doing a, a series on Sabbath on rest in God's presence. And so that's, that's what the focus is going to be on today, and we won't jump right into it. Um, but I want us to talk about this gift that God has given us as we take a breath at the end of the year and enter this next year. And I hope it's, it's useful, as useful for you all as it has been for Casey and I this past year. But before we talk about Sabbath, I think we need to talk about a few other things. First is desire. A word that I would argue is one of very few universal connecting points amongst all of humanity and is particularly important in understanding our Western society and culture. Desire can be defined as a strong feeling of wanting to have something or wishing for something to happen. And I would assume that desire is what got most of us out of bed this morning. It might have just been desire to use the bathroom. Uh, or it might have been something like desire for a slice of bacon or a cup of coffee, if you're me. Uh, and on some other days that are not Sunday morning, maybe it's a desire to go to work. Maybe you love your job. Maybe you don't love your job as much and it's a desire for the paycheck to provide for you or your family. But desire is a large part of our daily life. And desire in itself is not necessarily a bad thing, especially when it motivates us to create better, a better and more loving world for those around us. We can only hope as Christians, as a body together, that as we walk down this path, that we would desire all things that would create a more perfect union between God and us and others. 
And those are good things to desire, healthy things to desire. But as with anything, our desire can be twisted, right? It can be used for not such utopian ideals. There are dozens of scriptures that warn us against those desires that the devil tempts us with. In James 4.2, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 1 John 2.17 states that the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. And it's really easy to let your life become filled with desires that the world tells you are really important things in life, right? It's so easy to slip into that. And that's because we as human beings are born into the world with a desire for something great. A desire for something magnificent. A desire for the wonderful. Thomas Aquinas pondered what it would take to fulfill the seemingly limitless bounds of human desire. And he proposed that in order for somebody to feel truly satisfied, truly satisfied with their life, they would need to experience everything and everyone, and be experienced by everything and everyone. That means you would need to be experienced by every person as a mother and a father, as a child. You would need to learn every language and have a relationship with everyone on earth. You would need to eat at every restaurant, which for us ritualistic Church of Christers might be a little difficult. I think I've lived in Lawton now for two years and maybe eaten at three restaurants after church on Sunday. The Shirlers really like solaces. <clears throat> the Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes, nailed it when he said, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear is not filled with hearing. Carl Rayner said that we learn eventually in this life that there are no finished symphonies. Almost everything, if we allow it to, will leave us with a lack of closure, wanting more. Wanting just a little bit more. The human condition can be like living in a chronic state of restless, unsatisfied desire. And why? Like I said earlier, we were made for something great. We were made to have more than the nicest car, to have more than the nicest pair of clothes, more than the best shoes, the best casserole, whatever you may desire. We were made beautifully and painstakingly so that the only thing that could truly satisfy us would be our Creator, our God. Psalms 107, verse 9, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Isaiah 58, 11, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in a scorched place. You'll make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And that's just a smattering, a selection of the verses that we have available to us that tell us our satisfaction does not come from the things of this world. 
Anything less than God will lead to nothing but a dissatisfaction and a desire for more. When we fall away from God, we turn to finite things to replace the infinite. Careerism, shopping, relationships, greed, lust, and our culture carries us right along. And I don't think it would be wrong for me to say that we may be the most restless and dissatisfied people in the history of the world. That our culture today, we have access to any information that we want, anytime we want, at our fingertips. We have more money than everybody's ever had. We have access to whatever we want. And yet, suicide rates are increasing. Depression rates are increasing. Anxiety is increasing. Debt is increasing. Stress levels seem to be increasing. I don't know about for you, but for me. Everything is high strung and it is tense and it is about fulfilling your individual desires in this world. That's what we're told is important. After the last world war, there was a conscious effort by the people in charge to shift our economy from a needs-based economy to a wants and desires-based economy. In the last 50 years, we as Americans have doubled, and that's a conservative estimate, the amount that we spend per family on goods and services, even after adjusting for inflation. So we as Americans today are spending at least, and that's a conservative estimate, two times more on cars, on clothes, on whatever you can name, square footage, than we were 50 years ago. Have any of you ever heard of planned obsolescence? That's something that's popped up a little bit. It's a policy of producing consumer goods that rapidly become obsolete and so require replacing, achieved by frequent changes in design, termination of the supply of spare parts, and the use of non-durable materials how many of you bought a Christmas present that will need replacing next Christmas? This economy, this Western culture and this society is built on our restlessness. It is built on the fact that people know that we have an insatiable desire for something that we cannot attain. There's a term called hurry sickness that was coined by Meyer Friedman, a psychologist. He defines it as a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish, to achieve, or participate in more and more things in less and less time. And doctors are now legitimately calling this a Western disease. Something about the modern Western world is spiritually forming our souls, whether you want it to or not, into a condition of hurry, overload, and sickness that then requires the numbing of entertainment to get us to sleep. So what's the normal response these days when you ask somebody how they're doing? You say, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm really busy. Have you heard that? Have you said that? I've, I've just got a lot going on. I'm good. We're good. But we're just, we're just busy. To be busy seems to be important. 
to the world. If you were to walk up to somebody and say, hey, how you doing? Ah, man, I'm fine. I'm just twiddling my thumbs watching Netflix. You think you're, you don't have anything important going on at all. What are you doing? But if you walk up to somebody and they say, man, I'm busy. I've got this going on. 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 You're thinking, how do they do it? They must be important. They must get things done. Corey Ten Boom once said, if the devil can't make us bad, he will make us busy. How many of you are busy? And I'm not talking about the general busy. We're all busy. I get it. I'm not talking about the general busy if we ran an errand and we have stuff to do. I'm talking about busy. I'm talking about chronic restlessness. I'm talking about you, you cannot stop. And it feels like there's something driving you to not stop. How many of you need a nap? <laughs> Especially after the holidays. How many of us spend our days running from thing to thing, cramming our schedules with more than we should, buying more than we should, and then get even busier to make up for it? And even when we're not busy, we're not resting. We have a habit of confusing entertainment and rest, I think. Of confusing a space that is actually just numbing us with a space that is actually repairing us, healing us, giving us energy. Do you know that the average American watches five hours of TV per day? And I would bet if, even if you say you don't watch five hours of TV per day, I'd like to see your screen time on your phone or computer. We tend to confuse that to sit there and watch TV with rest, and it's not rest. What I want to ask is, if you had a little power bar above your head, only you can see it, if you had a little power bar above your head, where what would your battery percentage be most of the time? Is it above 90? Is it in low power mode almost every day? If you're like me, you wake up and you have to, you basically you're at 21%, and then you hit low power mode at about 10 o'clock, and you just kind of woo until you get back to charge at night. Let me ask you a question. Is there an, a difference in the way you treat people when your battery is at 8%? from when your battery is at 98%. And if you think of somebody that really grinds your gears, maybe it's me up here right now. <laughs> maybe it's an in-law. Maybe it's somebody at work that really grinds your gears. How do you respond to them when you're at 8% versus 88%? Here's a statement that might push the envelope a bit, but I think it's very rational if you think about it like that. Without rest, without actual rest, not just numbing, but actual rest, do you think we are capable of being the best servants of Christ that we are able to of being? And we don't even think about it, do we? And I'm not just talking about nine hours of sleep a night. What I'm not advocating here is that we all become really lazy and sleep 15 hours a night and we just don't do anything. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is allowing ourselves a space to rest, allowing ourselves to retract from the desires of this world, pause and be still with God. If I woke up at 3.30 every morning and prayed through the entirety of Psalms and read all of the Gospels and then walked outside and prayed for everybody that I saw walking by and by 7.30 in the morning I'm back home and somebody made my coffee wrong and I start yelling at them, what have I done? You've got to leave yourself enough margin. We as Christians have to leave ourselves enough margin 
to be present and focused. And that requires intentional rest. Intentional rest. Now, I believe wholeheartedly that God's vision for us is grounded in peace. And I believe part of that peace can be found in that rest. Now, hear me clearly again. I did not say laziness and ambivalence. I said peace and rest. God's vision for us is not grounded in Netflix and chilling. There's about 10 of you in the audience that got that. Sorry. (laughs) Jesus' word picture for us, when he's talking about what it looks like, is the vine and the branches. Abide in me. Abide in me. To bear fruit, we must remain attached. So how do we do that in today's world when we're constantly being barraged with things to buy, things to do, things to keep us numb? The question becomes, is there a practice given to us, a biblical practice given to us, something practical which we as Christians can use to combat chronic restlessness of the world? And I would say absolutely. There's a few, and one of them, something that I think we tend to forget, I was not aware of it before this year, is Sabbath. And that word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to cease. And I'll be honest, when I was introduced to the idea of Sabbath, I thought, it's an Old Testament thing, it's a Seventh-day Adventist thing, it's a Jewish thing, I'm not that interested, seems kind of weird. But what I'm advocating for today, after have experiencing some of this ourselves this year, Casey and I, is something that's been freed from legalities by Christ. The Sabbath was made for man, said Christ. Not man for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made and created for man. Now let's start a very abbreviated study of what Sabbath is, biblically. Genesis chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the host with them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. I'm going to say that again. God blessed the seventh day, the rest day, and made it holy because on it God had rested from all the work he had done in creation God rested. Oh, but I'm an executive at this place. God rested. Oh, but I have a lot of kids. God, after creating the universe, rested. And I've heard before, the devil doesn't take a day off. Well, the devil loses. The person who wins this took a nice Sabbath. He took a day. And what he's trying to convey here, what the writer is trying to convey here, I think, after listening to several people and and reading, is this feeling. And Some of you may relate to this, some of you may not, but I want you to be kind of going along and thinking about what this could be for you in your daily life. On a Saturday morning, you wake up and you do some chores outside. You spread some bark dust. You weed. You do a bunch of good things to make your yard look really nice. And it looks great. 
And around lunchtime, you go inside and you get yourself a cold glass of water, a glass of lemonade, and you come back and sit on your porch and you delight in your work. You say, oh, that looks good. I did a good thing. See, Sabbath is not this thing where we remove ourselves from the world. What God is calling us into is delight. That's the idea being communicated here. It's not a removal from the world. It's an intentional presence in the world and an acceptance of what is going on and saying, I choose to be present with you. In Genesis 1, God blesses three things. Animals, humans, and the Sabbath. God blesses animals by saying, be fruitful, increase in number. God blesses humans by saying, be fruitful and multiply. God blesses Sabbath a day, a day that refills you with creativity, love, joy, peace, patience, and an abiding rest that gives you the ability to say no to the world and yes to God. Did you know that the first time the word holy is used in the Bible is about the Sabbath? Now this is important because in the day and age that this was first written and read, the gods and goddesses of the time were found in temples. They were found in very specific places, and in order to appease or meet the gods, you had to go to these physical locations, offer a sacrifice, be cleansed in the temple, right? And what does God make his holy ground? He makes his holy ground the time that you set aside to be with him. You do not need to go somewhere to meet God. You do not need to offer anything to meet God. God, our God, the Father of all, sets aside a time. Did you know that it's the third commandment of the Ten Commandments? The bridge between the first two, which are about our vertical relationship, us and God, And those last seven, six, our relationship with others. And I think that's intentional. I'd I'd love for you to take some time and read that and think about what that means. That in order for us to take this relationship with God outwards, what do we need? We need the ability to take a break, to reflect, and to recenter on what God is doing in our lives. In the New Testament, Mark chapter 2, Jesus himself says, and I've already mentioned this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. What powerful words, the Sabbath was made for man. In Hebrews 4, 9 through 11, it says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. We have Christ, who is our rest, but we are also called into rest as God rested, as Christ rested, to recenter and realign ourselves with what truly matters. So, what does the Sabbath look like for us as Church of Christers here gathered in Lawton? And some of you may at this point not be into it at all. You may be thinking, you know, I'm just not sure about this thing. And, and I want to encourage you again to think about it. God doesn't invite us into a mandatory Sabbath. 
I'm not telling you from this podium that you have to spend now every Friday night from sundown until Saturday night at sundown to drop all of your technology and go Amish. What I am telling you is that Sunday morning is not enough. And that to be honest, for many of us in this room, this might not be the most restful time of the week or morning. We are called to invite God into our lives and to be intentional with what part of our lives that is at least once a week. And for many of us in particular, that means we should be really intentional with technology. I'm just going to be really upfront about that. I think that's kind of a plague for Christianity. Um, so here's a set of best practices for what Sabbath can look like for you. One is select a day and a time. And a lot of you are really busy, and it's legit busy, and some of it is good busy. And so the best you might be able to do is two hours on a Friday night with your kids where you sit down and you make dinner and you play a board game. That is intentional good time. The thing that we're after with Sabbath, according to all of these wonderful teachers that I've been reading, is something that can bring you joy without disconnecting you from God. That's what we're after. We're after a space, a time in the week where we are focused on being present with God and we do not distract ourselves with things that pull us away from his presence. And so for me, that looks like I wake up and I drink a lot of coffee. And then Casey makes waffles. And then I usually go spend time outside. And then I nap. And I read. And I eat some more. And all of those are things I really enjoy doing. And all of those are things I can do with God. And for some of you, that might mean you need social time. For others of you like me, it means leave me alone. <laughs> what we're after as a body of Christ and individually is a space and time where we have the ability to reflect and encounter God in a way that the world does not understand or encourage. And you don't even have to call it Sabbath. You can just call it your God time if that makes you uncomfortable. But I do think we are called to something more, and I really think that is a wonderful antidote to this chronic state of restlessness that we face. Some helpful tips that we've picked up along the way. Pick a ritual to begin and end your Sabbath, even if it's just an hour or a day. Pick something to do in the morning when you start or in the evening when you start. Whatever you do, pick something to start it and then select something to end it so that that time you know is special for you. And that's your ritual. It's your thing that you do with God, with your loved ones, whoever it may be. And then remember that Sabbath is one day, not seven. <laughs> we're called to work, and we're called to work hard. And this gives us the ability to go into those other six days rested at 98%, or maybe it starts to tail off towards the end and you get back down to 20, but Sabbath is designed for you. It was created for you by God as a rhythm of life to take some time, recenter, and rest. So I've got some, some closing thoughts, um, and then I'm going to read a benediction that Casey wrote, because she's better at that kind of stuff than I am, and then we'll pray and be invited to sing. Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. I encourage you in this coming year, as somebody who has benefited from this, as, as something that can recenter you, and we're not great at it, and we miss it sometimes. But this is a good time that is God-ordained and that I honestly think we are missing in our Christian fellowship and walk. This time on Sunday mornings is wonderful. It's a time for us to be encouraged to worship together. But I, please, give it a chance. Give God a chance to enter your life in a time that you have dedicated and set apart for Him, even if it's small. And I think you'll receive the gift that God offers in His presence, as Elijah did in the stillness, in the quiet, not in the chaos, in a quiet whisper. So this is from Casey. To the one who was too exhausted to come to church today, who came anyway, you are invited to rest. To the ones who feel as though they are their last, on their last rope. To the ones who keep trying and trying, yet nothing feels good enough. To the ones who serve with all they've got, you are invited to rest. To the servicemen and women, to the teachers, to the retired, to the stay-at-home moms, you are invited to rest. To those who spend long hours commuting, to those whose bank account isn't quite full enough, to those overwhelmed by anxiety, to those whose bodies just don't work like they used to, you are invited to rest. To the tired, to the weary, to the hurting, to the stressed or brokenhearted, God invites you to rest in his presence and his goodness. He invites you to be still and know that he is God. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful this morning to gather together here to remember you this morning with the bread and the cup and to remember the sacrifice that you made for us so that we may be able to live life to the full, to have access to our Father, to have access to this rest, to have access to this peace, to have access to your patience and understanding. And Father, I pray this morning for those in this room who have had a hard year, who feel worn down, anxious, and stressed, who are hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually, who are ill. Father, I pray that your rest would descend upon them. Father, I pray that we collectively in this room would make time for you, that we would be intentional about that time and that you would be with us during that time as you always are, that we would hear those still small whispers calling us to you, inviting us into rest, into something so countercultural, into something so beautiful and so satisfying, God. We ask your blessing on our time in that place. Fathers, we go from here today. For those who are visiting, I ask that you would bless their travels home. For those who are still planning on traveling, I ask that you would bless their travel. Keep them safe. Send angels to guide everyone on the road. We're grateful for this time and this place. It's your son's name that we pray. Amen. That rest and presence might be needed by some now. And if that's the the case as we move forward with worship, please don't hesitate to come up and receive that. The elders, I know, would be happy to talk with you, would be happy to pray for you, would be happy to meet with you 
and discuss whatever you'd like to discuss. And if you don't know Jesus, and you feel like you need a place to rest, I encourage you to talk with them as well. We have a place to go. It's not restricted to this place, or a ziggurat somewhere, or a sacrifice. All that's needed is for you to say, God be with me. So if that's you and you need some rest this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing.